You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week I'm joined by Martin McKee, Professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's also the Research Director of the European Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, a group which promotes evidence-based healthcare policies in Europe. We'll be talking about the effect the squeeze in funding is having on healthcare in Europe and the various strategies different countries are using to save money. But before all that, I've got David Bain here, who's going to talk me through some stuff that's on bmj.com this week. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. So, yes, what have you got for us? I thought I'd focus on a couple of blogs this week, actually, we've got on BMJ, and both are related to TV programmes that have been on the BBC this week. The first one was actually to do with the beatification of Cardinal John Henry Newman. It was a programme by the former Home Office Minister, Anne Whittacombe, who was a Catholic convert, but interestingly included interviews with a couple of doctors, because obviously to become a saint, you need to um, have demonstrated that you've been involved in a miracle, and uh, fortunately, Cardinal John Henry Newman was. There's a deacon in America called Jack Sullivan, who it turns out, I think, had lumbar canal stenosis and um, he prayed to John Henry Newman. Um, it's called a divine favour. Miraculously, according to his surgeon, Robert Banco, who's based in Boston, this was the, the required miracle that is needed to put uh, Newman on the path to sainthood. So there was, this, there was an interview with, with him on the Anne Willican programme and also um, with Michael Powell, who's a surgeon at the London's National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, who was um, you know, healthily sceptical about this. And um, we've got him to write a blog for us this week. So he, he really just talks about, um, in his take, what happened to Jack Sullivan and, um, you know, pours cold water on it, really. Sure. So what was the other TV programme? Well, the other TV programme was Panorama um, Investigation, but Panorama is a, a long-standing BBC documentary series, and it looked at um, public sector pay, and uh, it got hold of some data which showed the huge number of people in the public sector that earn more than the Prime Minister, and this has become this benchmark. I think um, David Cameron's on about £160,000 a year, and anyone that earns more than that um, obviously is robbing the taxpayer. And we got our BMJ Careers editor, Ed Davis, to write a very entertaining blog about that. And uh, Ed talks very waspishly but entertainingly about um, doctors that clock off at 4.30 in a gold Bentley giving £50 notes to massed peasants and uh, six, 1961 Dom Perignon champagne in their bath of ass's milk. And, uh, but it does go on to seriously say how many doctors do earn an awful lot. And I think the programme identified 10 GPs that earn over £300,000 a year. But as Ed says, they are probably businessmen running you know, more than one practice, a pharmacy, employing a number of staff. And obviously he's had quite a few comments on that, which is why I'm very pleased that both of them ended up on BMJ blogs. Great. Well, as David said, those are both on BMJ blogs, which you can read at blogs.bmj.com forward slash BMJ. Now, Martin McKee joined me in the studio last week to talk about the healthcare reforms in Europe. So, Martin, you're just back from the WHO regional meeting in Moscow, where the impact and Europe's response to the financial crisis has been discussed. Were there any key messages that came out of that meeting? Yes, there were three key messages. The first one was the importance for health ministers and their advisers to understand the language of the financial crisis. It was apparent that there was a great deal of confusion in the minds of many politicians, but also in the media and other people commenting on this and among the public about the terminology that's used. Take the example of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has a large deficit that is well known, but it also has one of the lowest levels of debt 
of any industrialised country. Mm. And it has the longest debt maturity. In other words, it has uh, much longer before it needs to refinance its money or its lending than uh, other countries. So it was apparent that you can use the language in different ways to present a very different picture. Some countries can be made to look very bad. Some countries can be made to look very good just by changing the nature of the terminology. The second message that came out strongly was a commitment among health ministers and in many countries from their cabinet colleagues as well to protect the most vulnerable. There was a clear recognition that at a time of recession, uh, those who were poor or unemployed are likely to suffer most. And uh, many health ministers recounted how they had got support from within their uh, governments and from their colleagues to provide support for the, the health budget. And the third message was the scope for using the crisis as an opportunity particularly in countries where there were issues that should have been addressed in the past but perhaps hadn't been. Uh, The economic changes made it possible to look at how you could bring about much-needed changes. Okay, We'll talk about reforms coming out of this in a second. But uh, before that, were there any countries that you saw that seemed to be dealing particularly well with this? The uh, ministers on the uh, panel uh, were able to give accounts of what they had been doing. And, of course, there are many others who may not have been able to describe Mm, what was going on. So we're a bit selective. But certainly the uh, account from Spain was interesting. They have been looking at refocusing their efforts on prevention and, in particular, moving away from some of the more expensive and less effective types of prevention, the individual clinically-based interventions like prostate cancer screening and so on, looking at the upstream population-based measures, increasing activity, against smoking and uh, hazardous drinking and poor diet across the whole population. Uh, The sorts of things that we're talking about in the UK by looking at minimum alcohol pricing, Mm, for example, and smoking bans and so on. Uh, The um, minister from Moldova described how he had been able to get additional funding for the health insurance fund, a a fund that has recently been really uh, redesigned uh, to uh, provide effective coverage where it didn't in the past, and uh, he'd been able to attract resources. A number of countries have been looking at driving down the costs of pharmaceuticals. And uh, we have examples from Greece and Ireland, for example. The, um, the Icelandic health ministry were describing the challenges that they faced in doing that as a very small country faced mm. with very powerful, large um, companies. But again, making progress. Iceland is an interesting example because there they have suffered very few health consequences despite being affected very badly because they have a very strong sense of community, a sense of cohesion. And uh, so marginal uh, adverse effects have been uh, apparent there, uh, despite the the depth of the recession that they faced. Mm. And you've talked there about things that have been in the air for a while. Were there any countries that seem to be mounting such radical reforms as we are in the UK? Well, not really. The United Kingdom is is somewhat different uh, because the reforms here often seem to have uh, much more to do with a belief about the size of the state than the actual economic difficulties. For example, it's uh, rather difficult to understand why we would be undertaking a 
a major reorganisation which Kieran Walsh and the BMJ estimated would cost about £3 billion at a time of financial austerity, uh, particularly when the benefits of those reforms are, to say the least, rather questionable. So the United Kingdom does come out as being rather different in that the Many of the policies that are being adopted, not just in the health sector, the uh, uh, abolition of the Audit Commission, which is a, a means of getting value for money, or the British Film Council, which uh, where investment brings more money back to the country, do seem to be about shrinking the state in the same way that the Canadian government did in the early 1990s, mm. and much less to do with really addressing the economic issues, uh, which are, in fact, somewhat... The, the situation here is certainly up for discussion, and there is a, an argument that uh, the economy is not quite as bad as the government make it out to be. Sure. Now, obviously, you seem quite concerned there. And do you think that these reforms might have a negative impact on the kind of fundamental basis of the NHS? The uh, reforms in, in the NHS, I think, need to be seen in a broader context. Uh, there are two issues that we could maybe look at. One is the issue of universal benefits that you talked about. And there we have heard many comments from politicians about uh, middle-class benefits. There are a number of reasons why you might want to have universal benefits rather than selective ones. The first is, of course, that it is much cheaper to do that rather than have expensive means testing programmes. And if you do have means testing, you invariably have people dropping through the gaps. But I think the most important one, and I think the one that is driving the uh, philosophy at the minute, is that if you do have universal benefits, the middle class feel that they have a stake in the system. And if you can erode that sense of identity with the system and if higher rate taxpayers feel that they're not getting anything back in return, they feel that their children are paying uh, large sums to go to university, they're not getting child benefit, then they begin to ask themselves, why are we paying taxes? And then eventually you get to a situation, as in the United States, where there is a, a revolt against paying for other people because you don't feel you get anything back. Very different from the situation with universal benefits in Scandinavia where the taxes are high, but the benefits are high. Then we come on to the reorganisation of the National Health Service. The Health Service Journal this week had a, an article where they talked about the 300 different functions undertaken by primary care trusts, which go far beyond commissioning. They look at needs assessment and uh, assessing the needs of particular of minorities and vulnerable populations and so on. It's really very difficult to see how the reforms will improve the uh, services that are provided for the most vulnerable, the homeless, for example, uh, some ethnic minorities. Uh, so I, I'm, I obviously we need to wait and see, but just simply prima facie, it seems very difficult to see how the reforms that are being proposed uh, will improve equity. Mm. As well as the big reforms that are, are taking place, there's going to be a freeze on uh, the healthcare budget. So, in effect, it's going to be reduced as, as demand mm. increases. Do you think that's a, a mistake? Well, I'm glad you used the term freeze because we often have the term ring fencing uh, when I think it's much more accurate to describe it as a freeze. Do I think it's a mistake? One of the commentators from one of the leading international agencies, one of the major economic agencies, said, and, and I quote, we should be pouring money into mental health at a time like this. Uh, not talking specifically about the United Kingdom, but talking in general, clearly at a time when we're going to have large-scale unemployment, if we erode 
welfare benefits, but also social protection generally, we are likely to see adverse health consequences. We have done research previously which looks at the relationship between unemployment and mortality, and we see that in countries that have strong social protection, typically the Scandinavian countries, they can uncouple this association between unemployment and suicides, Sweden in the 1990s, for example. But in other countries that have weak welfare systems, then as unemployment goes up, suicides do as well. And of course, suicides are only the tip of the iceberg. Now, in terms of making reforms, uh, anything like that, kind of evidence-based, you need to be able to measure the outcomes of what's taken place. I believe that's something that the European Observatory is starting to look at. Yes, well, we're continuing the work that we've already been doing and uh, we've now set in place a project to monitor the response to the economic situation across Europe uh, to try to catalogue the different changes that are taking place. Now, of course, many of these changes are uh, externally imposed on health ministries rather than being initiated by them themselves. Uh, They may be a consequence of falling tax revenues or falling employee contributions, uh, other factors. Uh, But we, we want to look at both the measures that are being taken by health ministries and the measures that are being taken across government that impact on health. And has that been looked at in the past? To a relatively little extent, uh, there is work on the uh, East Asian economic crisis in the 1990s that looked at how different countries responded. So, for example, uh, some like Malaysia rejected the advice of the International Monetary Fund and uh, refused to undertake the austerity measures they were being urged to do. Uh, And they found that there was not a, a worsening of health, which was seen in countries like Indonesia and Malaysia that did accept the uh, the, the demands of the International Monetary Fund. Interestingly enough, the IMF seems to have learnt from this and, and yesterday Dominic Strauss-Kahn, the head of the IMF, uh, warned countries against cutting uh, too severely because of the human cost that would be involved. And of course that echoes advice from the um, Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development uh, and and others who have drawn attention to not just uh, the the potential adverse economic consequences of severe austerity measures. Uh, We see that in Ireland. Uh, They cut their budget greatly and now they've choked off growth and their credit rating has been downgraded. Mm. Uh, In fact, precisely the things that we're in the United Kingdom being advised uh, to do to prevent uh, those consequences. And uh, I, I think that is very much in, in keeping with the advice of a number of leading economists, David Blanchflower uh, most notably, but also the Nobel laureates Joe Stiglitz and Paul Krugman. Sure. Now, obviously, that's lots to think about going on. And there's a, a meeting in a, a couple of weeks' time, the European Health Forum Gastein. Are some of these key issues going to be debated there? They will be. We did talk about the financial crisis last year, so we'll be looking uh, with a slightly longer-term perspective this year. The main focus will be of population ageing, because that is a challenge that faces all countries in Europe to greater or lesser extent, but it is a common challenge. And we know that we need to adapt to the fact that there will be much uh, lower numbers of young people who are supporting people in, in old age. Now, this is sometimes presented in a rather cataclysmic way, uh, but there is quite a lot of evidence that much can be done to ameliorate this by relatively small increases uh, in the pension age, for example. 
There are other knock-on effects, of course, that need to be taken into account, and that is the need for migration, for people to be brought into Europe from elsewhere to do the jobs, in particular the long-term caring. And that, of course, clashes with policies like those of the United Kingdom government to restrict migration, and that clearly will be a tension that we will need to address. But but generally, the story on ageing is a positive one. People are living longer and they're living healthier, uh, which I think is something to be celebrated. As well as paying for health, an ageing population is going to have an effect on the kind of health system. Um, Are you going to be talking about that? We most certainly will. We will be talking about the workforce, the the health workforce. And this was something we also talked about um, last week at a conference held under the Belgian presidency of the European Union. The types of patients who will be treated in the future will be Uh, more of what we already see, the older patient with multiple chronic diseases. So perhaps we might see someone with seven or eight disorders, Parkinson's disease, chronic airways disease, heart failure, maybe with impaired kidney or liver function, maybe on 10 or 12 drugs. But the model of care in many countries is still based on individual specialists, which is simply not appropriate. We need to look at ways of multi-professional, multidisciplinary team working. Uh, That will be a challenge for some countries. Here, the United Kingdom is well ahead, uh, something we've known for some time because, of course, the United Kingdom does get very good outcomes in chronic disease management uh, compared to to its neighbours. Sure. Now, you've mentioned through this this interview a myriad of meetings. Um, is Gastein a particularly big, worthwhile one? Uh, will anything concrete come out of it? Gastein's a very useful meeting for bringing people together. So we have senior politicians, ministers, their advisors, the European Commission, the World Bank, World Health Organization and others. And uh, it does take people away from the office for a few days in an environment in which they're immersed in discussing these issues. There are many common challenges across Europe. We're all facing the same problems to different extents. And clearly there is the scope for learning from that. And that's something that the European Observatory invests a great deal of effort in doing to make sure that we adopt those ideas that work and uh, we don't adopt those ideas that don't work. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back with the story of a regulator trying to get comprehensive data on a drug. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.